Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. In this episode from our DC podcast series, Brownstein strategic advisor Senator Mark Begich joins policy director Kate McCandless and of counsel Peter Goodlow for a post-mortem on the health care bill as well as an in-depth discussion on drug pricing and other health care initiatives Congress and the administration will focus on in the coming months. Welcome back again. Uh, we're here with the Brownstein Health Care Practice Group, which is a very uh, big operation within the Brownstein firm. We've got a lot to cover today. First, we'll kind of recap kind of what happened on Capitol Hill with regards to health care, the latest attempts to repeal Obamacare. And then we'll want to dig a little deeper on kind of what's next, what's the future, maybe smaller items, drug pricing seems to be kind of percolating up there. But I'm joined this morning with Kate McCandless and policy director, leads the Brownstein Healthcare Practice Group and is a seasoned, and truly I know this, I've worked with you many times in healthcare arena. She has represented numerous healthcare corporations and trade associations before Congress and executive branch agencies, including the FDA, CMMS, and the VA, as well as many others. We're also joined with uh, Peter Goodlow of Council, brings 23 years' experience of developing policy and legislation as an attorney for the U.S. House of Representatives. In the House, he was with the Office of Legislative Council for many years and also spent time with the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Again, welcome to both of you as part of the Brownstein Healthcare Practice Group. So, Kate, let me start with you. I mean, Every day seemed to be changing. Actually, every hour seemed to be changing around health care. It was repeal, replace, reject, remove. Uh, as we said once before, all the R words you can figure out. So what happened? And, and you know, I don't even know where to begin. It seemed like three branches of government controlled by the same party. I think there was a lot of hope by those who believed in repeal that this is going to happen. And then it just kind of fell apart. Well, there was one R word that we didn't expect, and that was rush. <laughs> uh, we tried to cram 18 months of policy into 18 days. And unfortunately, I think we saw that with respect to the way that negotiations need to be handled, uh, particularly in this day and age, that there needed to be time for these conversations to ripen. I believe that the administration didn't have the patience for that time. You know, I've, we do a lot of corporate work, and you see the speed at which deals come together and, and how tenuous they are uh, and, and how quickly they can fall apart. So I understand someone from a business background thinking that, that things are moving too slowly and that, that we needed to speed up the pace. And unfortunately, I think they learned a lesson that that's not the way that policy Policy develops in Washington, and so you know, I, just I about think, everything doesn't develop that way well, that's in Washington. True. <laughs> that's but true. policy, especially, takes and time. It does, and and uh, you know, there aren't a lot of negotiating tools left for leadership right now. And I know we're going to talk about that a little bit, but you know, you have to figure out where people's pressure points are. And unfortunately, the calculation of you know, vote or or you're going to pay for it uh, didn't didn't seem to pan out for the administration. So here we are. Well, let me uh, further that conversation. You're, you're right on a kind of a broad perspective. Um, before we got on uh, air here, we were, Pete, you and I were talking about kind of the tools. What helps move this kind of big policy legislation? You know, in the past, you could take a bill like this and, you know, you'd have a lot of tug of war. You'd have a lot of activity on the floor. You'd have people in the halls grabbing each other. But you would have some tools in the box, the leadership and, and that seems to not be really out there anymore. Kind of what what did you see from your perspective in regards to this big issue, and how did it not move forward when it seemed on the surface this is moving? 
I mean, I think everyone, if we, we, if we look back a few months ago, we, I think all of us said, oh, repeal, that's going to happen. The harder part is to replace. So w- what did you see? Or was there something missing in this equation when they're making this kind of, you know, soup? Well, the, the tools don't exist that were once there for putting a deal together in some respects. The, the public generally assumes earmarks were a terrible thing. Right. But ha- having been on the inside for a few years and watching As some would say in the legislative body, earmarks, self-directed appropriation, so forth, so on, which only was 1% of the budget and never exceeded budget caps. Well, and exactly. And those are the facts, but we don't want facts in this equation. <laughs> but. <laughs> but the truth is that the pie got split up among everybody, mm-hmm. from, from the most powerful person who obviously got a bigger share of the pie, but, but, but junior people got their share of the mm-hmm. pie. And so it was a system uh, that worked, and it could help uh, put together a deal. And then there are other issues that have just changed over the year. I mean, outside money. Makes Huge. makes more difference. And on this issue, we saw something very unique. I mean, the the, the Koch brothers usually w- w- would want the repeal, but they actually said, if you vote no on doing that, we'll actually reward you. You know, we'll, we'll you know don't support this effort that the uh, Republican leadership wanted and Trump wanted, and they will support you in campaigns. It was kind of the reverse. It was kind of confusing to people. Like, what, what happened here? Yes, the. Um the, the Freedom Caucus was trying to move the bill uh, further uh, to the right, uh, and a lot of pressure was being uh, exerted on the Freedom Caucus, and the Koch brothers are trying to say, we, we've got your back. You know, when you, in your primaries, we're, we're going to be there uh, with our money to help Well, and that's a good point, you. too. I mean, you know, the coalition of, of voices against this bill included not only, you know, the Koch guys and the Freedom and the Heritage Foundation and those types of organizations supporting the Freedom Caucus guys, but then all the way on the other side, you know, you had a, a, you know, a whole cadre of people coming out against the bill for, for other reasons. I don't the progressive could, liberal exactly. side. They were I mean, finding, that's a real talent to put together a bill that is that bad to people that, that, <laughs> those, that all of those folks agree on one thing. Well, Ryan was operating off of principle, but the Freedom Caucus uh, believed that they were operating on, on principle, too. They, they talk about lowering uh, the, the, the cost to consumers. Of course, their view is if, you, if the government will just get out of the way and let the free market work, the free market will, will, will lower it. And then, again, as Kate is saying, the rush factor. What does this bill really do? And then CBO showed up and said what it will do. Right. 24 million people fewer insured uh, 10 years out. Um, and then uh, as we came closer and the, the polls are dropping, uh, 17% approval. Some of the Freedom Caucus members are citing that. I mean, uh, you're going to go back to your district <laughs> with a bill right. with 17% approval. And some were having tough town hall meetings. I remember in 09 when I was in the Senate and we were moving the bill forward. I remember one town hall meeting, I had probably six, 700 people, and I had several death threats, actually, and we had police, undercover police officers there. But we, you know, we did it, but it, it, they were tough. And when I started seeing this on TV, it was the reverse. And you're thinking, okay, this is not going to end well, no matter what deal they cut, because the, the pressure seemed to be from so many different elements. And so when you throw that all into the mix, suddenly it just was we're done. And it just kind of, I mean, not even a vote, which I think some people thought, okay, there's going to be a vote. But then as, you know, kind of the rule around that capital is, well, if you don't have the votes, don't bring it to the floor. But I'm not sure they ever knew until the last minute that, okay, there's a lot of votes we don't have here anymore. Well, and you know, that's a really, that's an interesting 
maybe not new paradigm, but it certainly feels like we've moved into something that is a little bit un- unchartered. And that is that, you know, Republicans adhere to the Hastert rule in the House. Right. So they will only bring a bill to the floor if the majority of the majority agrees. And I think that generally you assume then that if you've got the majority of the majority, you probably have, you know, enough votes to pass the bill. Right. But you know, leadership is now operating under a paradigm in which they are not going to bring a bill to the floor if they don't have the majority of the votes. Right. Uh, you know, They've actually our, taken Hazard Plus. Hazard, what, yeah, one of our colleagues <laughs> is calling it the Ryan Rule. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that may be an, a new shift uh, for us moving forward, that we won't see legislation come to the floor that we don't know absolutely is going to pass. Well, the Hastert Rule, the majority of the majority, What's uh, inherent or implicit in that is you're going to have some Democrats voting with you. (laughs) And so and uh, and with this bill, no Democrats. And so how do you thread the needle between the Freedom Caucus on on, on the one side and moderate Republicans on the other? I mean, for example, the New Jersey delegation, they were running away from it. When the last day that, you know, the chairman of the Appropriations Committee jump ship. Right. I mean, so. It's, it's an interesting dynamic, and I guess on when you think of the health care bill, which, you know, is is complicated. There's no question about it. Uh, it's well, the in, administration thinks it's not complicated. That's right. They said it's easy. They said <laughs> they actually it said, easy. We can make this deal. Uh, well, that deal didn't happen. And when you also think about, and I think of my experience in 09, you know, the requirement that we had to post it notice it, let people read it, all those pieces of the equation did not happen here. And it's almost like you could have gone back in history and said, okay, what did happen then and what is happening now? And there's a lot of replication. I mean, they were trying to rush it. They kept it all one party. I mean, you can go through the list. And in this case, the notice alone, I mean, I heard members who said, at least put it up there because my constituents don't even have a chance to see what's going on. And and then you had some quietly say off the record that they're not even sure what totally is in the bill, right. even though it's a small bill and compared to the former Obamacare bill. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, this became kind of this ball of wax that everyone realized, forget it walk away from it. So do you think there was a little bit of a bump in at a couple of days afterwards that people said, okay, maybe we could have some discussions going on? And I think I read yesterday or day before that Bannon has entered the equation talking to moderates, which I do not understand that equation. I don't know if that's going to work out so well. But do you think there's even some uh, life left in this or is it basically burned out and people are just going to have to walk away from it? I think that the AHCA, as it currently stands, uh, probably has very little life left in it. Um, you know, as Pete has said, it, it is terribly unpopular, and that stigma will carry along with it for you know for the rest of its life. I do think that there are opportunities. Um, you know, a, a number of folks that maybe didn't know what was in the bill or didn't like what was in the bill, but was they were going to vote for it anyway, understood that this was part of a process, um, you know, and, and that, that the actual mechanisms of repeal and replace can't even begin until the House sends something over to the Senate. Uh, and, you know, it's been questioned in the past several days, well, why doesn't the Senate then just go ahead and put a plan together so that, that House, uh, you know, the House members can feel confident that when their shell gets to the Senate, what's inserted into it is something that they can live with. And, you know, the reality here is 
we're seeing a lot of Republican on Republican crime these days. And <laughs> the House Republicans and Senate Republicans don't necessarily trust or like each other. That's right. And that's a really big issue. And I think until we get past that, you're going to continue to see, you know, deployed emissaries trying to talk to moderates or Senate Republicans or, you know, whoever the group of the day is. But we, we have to find a policy that we can circle around. And I don't think, no, I don't think it's the AHCA. Well, things still continue to evolve rapidly. Just uh, last uh, Friday when uh, Ryan faced the cameras and said, you know, we're having to pull the bill and we're getting growing pains, learning how to govern and so forth. But he also said uh, Obamacare is the law of the land and will be for some time. But then this week, there's lots of buzz about, uh, well, are they looking for a plan B? And then Ryan, he's worried that uh, the, the, the Republican Congress is going to push the president into working uh, with Democrats. And so there's a message to the Republican conference in the House. But it's not as if, really, the Republicans uh, really have the option of doing nothing. And, and what I have in mind with that comment is the issue of the cost-sharing subsidies. You know, as many people know, the House Republicans sued uh, the Obama administration and were uh, successful in convincing a court that the uh, source of appropriations that was being used to fund the cost-sharing uh, uh, reductions, co-pays and so forth for patients, uh, was not authorized, was Ill- illegal, and that case is still out there. And if the, there's an agreement right now to, uh, to, to sort of pause this litigation, and, and I think they're supposed to touch base with the court in July, but uh, if this moves forward and, and that becomes a final ruling that these cost subsidies uh, have to stop, that's going to, uh, that is going to crash uh, Obamacare. Let me... Okay just then appropriate the funds? Well, I mean, Congress can do something about this. I mean, all you have to do is change the law. Uh, Tom uh, Cole, the uh, chair of the uh, Labor HHS subcommittee at the House Appropriations, has said uh, that he thinks that, uh, that we should appropriate this money. Uh, but he says it's a leadership decision. Uh, Thune, uh, Finance Committee member, Senator Thune, uh, he, apparently he, he believes it should be done as well. And so, and the risk for the Republicans, you know, if, if you do nothing and Obama, Obamacare does have serious problems, are they going to be able to blame it on Democrats or do Republicans now own health care totally? Well, let me uh, shift a little bit here. So, we talked a lot about where the law is, what happened to it, kind of some of the nuances. But let's walk forward, you know, to the future. Maybe the future is actually upon us today, but let's think about this. And there may we, we recognize there's pieces that are percolating. For example, we know on drug pricing this is becoming a new – I don't want to say new subject. It's been around. But the Trump administration was very strong about during the campaign, about getting control of this, getting Medicare to negotiate – you know, the list goes on. Then you had um, Bernie Sanders on TV recently talking about why this is a perfect thing that the Trump administration should work on. I think Eliza Cummings is going to meet with the president on this issue. So suddenly you have this kind of molding of something that is it real or not? 
We we here at Brownstein, in, in the practice you all specialize in, we have a lot of clients that obviously care a lot about healthcare in many different ways. And one of the things they worry about, just like any business, is what are the rules they need to play by? Maybe regulation around FDA, which is a whole other issue. Uh, what are, What's going to happen with pharma? All these things. What are the next steps in this? And let's just take pharma as an example. And and sometimes when you say the word pharma, people go, oh, that's that's bad, right? You have people that are already opposed to them. The reality is we know this from a lot of the work we all do that there's a lot of activity that they do to bring new drugs to market that are not as easy as people think. There's a partnership with the federal government and universities to bring technologies. There's a lot of pieces of this equation. But there's also this political, like, why don't we have the lowest prices in the world? Because we have the best manufacturers. So, you know, the list goes on. So let me start first with you, Kate. Is this a real threat to, say, the industry and their concerns? Is it a real reality to the consumer that they're going to see suddenly tomorrow all this new stuff? Does the president have power through executive order to do something that people aren't aware of? What's your thinking on that around the whole issue of prescription drugs, pharma, all that? Well, I think uh, your your observations are all you know, spot on. I think that uh, the the connotation of pharma tends to be negative, and I think a lot of that has to do with the talking points that we hear from uh, from politicians. And in fact, you know, the the industry has recently launched a, an advertising campaign to talk about the successes of the industry, and and uh, the theme of of the uh, advertising campaign is go boldly, and it speaks to how. You know, very difficult it is. Uh, how many how many failures are experienced, and and how long the life uh, is of of creating a, a new life saving therapy, and uh, notably, it's sponsored by. America's biopharmaceutical companies, not by pharma. Right, but um, people will lump them together. People, right? Well, it, it, it's the same entity. It's right. just a new, Word. a new reference. Right. Um, and so I think that they recognize uh, some of the limitations of, of pharma as it's written. But, you know, frankly, I think that people don't understand. And, and by people, I mean broadly the, you know, the general public all the way up to, you know, members on the Hill that we speak with. They, they don't understand the investment that goes into creating a new therapy, particularly one uh, that is novel and and has the ability to to alter a disease or or even cure one and you know the the years of investment uh, in the billions of dollars that go into that type of research and and frankly it is we are the best uh, in the world and it is something that Americans want and so the the value proposition of cost um, you know is often something that is discussed more between payers. And the industry, the pharmaceutical industry. So, for example, insurers or perhaps the federal government. Um, and it, it it's less uh, conversations that are happening with individual Americans and their pharmaceutical companies. And I think that's an important distinction to draw. What are you hearing kind of out there with the whole issue? I mean, are we going to see, you know, now that healthcare is kind of the broad healthcare is kind of off the table, suddenly these pocket issues that become kind of major. Is, is pharma going to be on the block and is prescription drugs going to be the topic of the, of the year? Well, that's an important issue. Well, the ACA repeal and, and replace legislation was, was just occupying almost all of the bandwidth. As we uh, say in D.C., it sucked the oxygen out of the room. Sucked the oxygen <laughs> out of the room. And so now that's over and uh, you know, Congress is going to do something with its time. And so this issue is, is popping up. Uh, uh, the, uh, the there's 
talk among Democrats that uh, with the repeal and replace out of the way, this is an issue should, we should be focusing on. I, I count about um, nine bills in Congress that relate to drug pricing. Uh, they, uh, one of the ones uh, that's received a lot of attention is in the importation, the, the Sanders bill, and there's a, uh, there's a companion bill uh, in the House from, uh, from Representative Cummings. And as we know, Cummings has been to the White House to talk to Trump about the drug, the drug pricing issue. But there is some recognition that it's, um, the, the drug companies aren't the only parts of this equation. Uh, I, I heard uh, Senator Sanders on the radio yesterday morning, and yes, he went after drug companies, but he also went off uh, on the insurance companies. Mm -hmm. And there are other members who have been focusing on the role of uh, pharmacy benefit managers. Right. You know, there's a perception that... Well, wait a second. Drug companies do uh, negotiate with the PBMs and, and, and negotiate discounts. And then the question is, well, do those discounts make their Get way? Get through to the consumer. Way to consumer. Which actually is an interesting question. In, in the patient. And so Congress is beginning to understand the complexity of the situation. Do, do you think that when you think of the drug pricing, do you, is, there, is there actions that, let, let's say there's no legislative action, does the president have some tools in his box with CMS or with uh, executive orders or with the FDA or, you know, Medicare or, you know, well, VA we've already seen because they do negotiate. But are there something out there that he can reach into? Now, I say this with a little caution because I think the answer is probably yes, because he'll do executive orders on anything and let the courts decide them, as we've seen already. So I'm, but I'm wondering, is there something that he'll get advice that says, hey, you want to do something here? Here's how we can do it. So I think the most likely place for that to happen, you know, last year during the Obama administration, uh, there was an initial uh, demonstration project that came out of CMMI, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, uh, which has the authority to broadly test uh, you know, different different payment models. And, and one of those had to do with the way that we reimburse uh, Part B drugs, which are drugs that are administered by physicians in a physician's office. And uh, ultimately, that proposal uh, was was pulled back. And, it um, you know, it but the, the, the central ideas around it uh, continue to live on, and that is, are there ways that we can change physicians' prescribing patterns if there are incentives for them to use lower-cost uh, drugs? And so I think that given this administration's interest in, uh, in this issue specifically, uh, Tom Price is now in charge of CMS uh, or CMMI and, and uh, you know, over at HHS, and, and I happen to... Uh, recall that he is a he, he's a skeptic a little bit of some of the ways that CMMI implemented its earlier demonstration projects. However, he is uh, supportive of CMMI as, as an entity. I think that you know this is potentially something where they take a look at some of the the, the issues they had with the Part B demo, maybe make some design changes, uh, and maybe uh, you know you'll see that reintroduced as a concept. The proposal the Obama administration put out. Uh uh, as a CMMI matter, in other words, Medicare reimbursement for Part B drugs. Uh, yes, uh, Secretary Price, when he was in the, in the House, was very opposed to that. Uh, but remember, before it was all over, Democrats were asking the, the, the agency to withdraw it. And the, 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 what, what generated the opposition was that it was mandatory. Mm 
and was going to cover a, s- a significant percentage of the entire country. So, and that was uh, the, the source of some it of the It was too opposite. much. It went too far. Right. It was almost, some people felt like, wait a second, a change of this magnitude has to come from Congress. Mm-hmm. You, you can't just decide to do this under authority. Or a demonstration project. <laughs> exactly. So, so, but what can be done uh, in the executive branch on its own to do something about pricing? Okay, uh, a, a, a demonstration project of smaller scale would be the way to do things. We also heard a, a lot during the, the presidential campaign that, that FDA is somehow uh, inefficient, there's too much red tape, and drugs don't get approved. But I think, I don't think even industry would agree with that because uh, the, the FDA's efficiency has become uh, much, much greater over the years, partially because of the PDUFA program, prescription drug user fees. Those user fees fund the salaries of additional uh, staff at FDA to review the applications, and FDA is actually doing quite well in in its approval times, and I think industry doesn't want people uh, interfering with the agreement they just struck uh, about about. Padufa next year. And so, but one way uh, I think people are still talking about is there's something we can do to get uh, generic drugs approved more quickly. And I think there's been some uh, interest in, in, in Congress uh, on that issue. And I think, you know, Pete brings up the, the Padufa agreements. Um, you know, we're talking about executive actions, but this may be a situation where executive action isn't necessary. You have an issue that has, you know, broad bipartisan support in concept, right? There's a lot of Republicans and Democrats who think that drugs are you know, too costly and we should be doing something to help consumers, to help the end user. In, in many instances, a proposal around drug pricing would need to catch a ride on a larger piece of legislation, right? It's not something that we think would just pass the House and pass the Senate and then be signed by the president. But there are multiple opportunities over the course of the next several months where uh, a bill like, uh, you know, a drug pricing bill would be germane to an underlying piece of legislation that's moving. So, for example, the user fee agreements are up for uh, for reauthorization, and that should be completed this summer. The Children's Health Insurance Program and the Medicare extenders will also uh, be addressed at some point in the next six to eight, eight months, maybe sooner. And so, you know, realistically, you may not need uh, an administrative play on this. This might be something that That's could catch fire motion. on legislation. What would, in this situation, let's say this becomes a pretty hot issue on, on pharmaceuticals, is there is there something that the industry should be being proactive on, not necessarily the generic drug producers, but the name brand drug producers, which both of them are now kind of mixed anyway, is there something that they should be doing in anticipation or in kind of the offense rather than waiting for something to happen? It seems like they're always – it seems like something happens and they respond. And, you know, it seems like there's a lot of – like you said, there's a lot of Democrat, Republican, now administration interest in this issue. So is there something proactive? And I think of the days way back when the uh, movie industry said, you know, we're going to do our own – self-regulating regarding rating systems and other things. They did it themselves because they saw this coming from government and they said, we don't want all that. Is, is there anything like that that's out there? Or maybe there's not. Maybe it's just kind of the the process we're in. So I think that uh, there are a number of companies who are looking at transparency proposals, mm-hmm. who are issuing transparency reports about the costs that go into creating a therapy and, and how price is generated. 
there's been a lot of criticism over those proposals and those reports. And so, you know, I'm not sure how helpful they are generally. But unfortunately, you know, back to my earlier comment, I think we found ourselves in a situation where not so, not so much on the PDUFA agreements, but certainly on, on CHIP and, and Medicare extenders, the Congress is going to be looking for pay-fors. Mm-hmm. And an industry doing something voluntarily doesn't pay doesn't for anything. Doesn't pay for it. And I think that's just the unfortunate reality. Yeah, the, the congressional process of we want something, but oh, by the way, it does cost money. Exactly. So let me end on this and just maybe Pete or either Kate or both of you. Um, it sounds like there are May healthcare come back or not? There's a lot of little pieces, as you mentioned, there's several little pieces of legislation. They're actually big, but they're by themselves, their own entities. Is that kind of what we're going to be doing for a little while here until, and I think you said it earlier, Pete, regarding, you know, at some point, we're going to be back to this bigger issue of healthcare. If everyone who talks about the healthcare system still having significant challenges. But is this kind of the path forward, these little pocket issues that might ride here, ride there, but not a grand plan until there's another crisis of some sort? Well, it's, it's, a, com- it's a combination, yes. I mean, the, uh, uh, right after we had the, 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 the bill was pulled in, in the House, you know, the chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee says, well, okay, well, we're not going to sit around and do nothing. We're going to start looking at federally qualified health centers, community mm-hmm. health centers, and we're going to look at SCHIP and so forth. So they will move health-related things, but eventually something about shoring up Obamacare uh, has, has got to come back, and there are people willing to do something. Uh, I think the, uh, Senator um, Alexander and Corker mm-hmm. just introduced a bill having to do uh, the situation where uh, there's there's an ACA exchange in a state, but the, no, no insurers participating. Right. So here, Republicans trying to do something about that. Republicans talking about doing something about the cost subsidies. Um, but but these other projects you're talking about, like drug pricing, will continue to, uh, to move. But as much as everybody wants to do something about drug pricing, it's equally hard to know what to do because, okay, uh, approving generic drugs more quickly sounds like a good idea, but while we're talking about you know lowering the standards, and uh, and even liberal Democrats are aware that well, how hard do we push on the, on the, on the drug companies because we don't want the new treatments to stop coming. We right. don't want the R and D to Some stop. Some of the new treatments for very small populations. Well, that's probably the way of the future because it's the, we know more about genetics, that's and right. so we're going to tailor these drugs. To, yeah, that's very narrow cast. Exa- and yeah. so right, m- more drugs for smaller populations, but that's also you don't have the big blockbuster anymore, and that's. Yeah. That's a shift the whole industry is going to have to deal with. Well, and I think it's also that's a very good point. You know, policymakers have to recognize that the paradigm has changed in terms of of targets for drug therapy. And when you only have a patient population of 7,000 people in the entire country that are ever going to qualify for this therapy, it's going to be costly. And maybe we just have to wrap our arms around the idea that that it's costly. And, Senator, you know from your own experience that one thing that I'll – legislators and staff are thinking about whenever they put the policy together is what are the unintended consequences? Right. Where are the time bombs? <laughs> and so, and so <laughs> Sometimes they spend too much time on that and not thinking about the end product either. Uh, let me just say first to, to both of you, Kate, Pete, thank you very much. This is always, I think, when, when you think of the, the firm and the work that goes on uh, with the healthcare practice, it is, seems to be one of our most uh, our busiest, it seems, robust and growing area, and it's because it's not simple anymore. It's very complex. And so thank you for what you do with the clients. And thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. Our pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.